I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson, episode 88. We, we made it. 88 keys. Uh, the crazy 88. 88 minutes starring Al Pacino. Uh, I feel like maybe there's one more. Uh, if only someone could tell me what it was. But I can't, I can't. Let's see here. 88. Back to the future. Miles per hour. Got it. All right. Moving on. Uh, so, all right. As I mentioned last week, Josh is in Connecticut, uh, assistant directing a. Uh, I don't think it's a feature. I think it's something uh, web related. But uh, anyway, so he's going to be gone uh, this week and next week. And so, uh, in the meantime, today, and I don't, and I don't think I have any announcements as far as uh, the website. As I mentioned last week, there's a couple of articles by Travis and Reed about uh, Breaking Bad, both of which are very interesting. And so, and there will be more to come uh, as the season progresses. So, oh, that reminds me, I haven't watched the most recent episode. I got to get on that anyway. Um, so, all right, uh, by a weird coincidence, uh, so with Josh gone, of course, uh, I need a, I, I need a, a replacement host, a fill-in. And, uh, so I brought back Robert Hornack, who will speak in a moment, uh, and I realized that the last time Josh was gone, Robert filled in for him, and so, uh, but in this case, it's just, uh, I didn't even really think about that until I had already asked him, uh, where basically, we are going to have Robert on to talk about, you know, what we're going to discuss today, um, we're going to do that anyway, even with Josh here. And then, uh, Josh said, Oh, I got this job. And so, uh, but I decided to, uh, to leave this anyway. So, uh, Robert is not the, uh, the official fill in host. So I don't want anyone to think that he has not earned it and I am not going to just give it to him, but he's here now. Uh, Robert Hornack, Robert, how you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, I, I, I think that I function well as a replacement or fill in. I could see that. Yeah, I, I, I feel I feel comfortable in that in that role. Um, and I, I didn't know what the etiquette was with regard to Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I scrawled it down as soon as you said eighty eight. Yeah, I was like, oh wait, please don't drive eighty eight. Huey Lewis implores us via song to please don't drive eighty eight. And Back to the Future, or was it Back to the Future two? Uh, who cares? But also, <laughs> here's the thing: Only I me. don't I don't care for Huey Lewis. I'm all right with the news, but I'm not a big fan of Huey Lewis. Uh, I don't know why. I just, uh, I don't know. He's uh, Do you like Huey Lewis in the news? I kind of like him. Okay. I do. I guess I, the Maybe I'm more are... fascinated because Huey Lewis has this raspy voice mm-hmm. that shouldn't work, but it does. And That's so I'm true. Kind of like a, uh, who's, uh, who's the guy from the Eagles that went off on his own? 
Um, Glenn Fry. The other guy. The other one, I don't remember. Ah. Uh, anyway, yeah, he's got a rough... Oh, Don, Don Henley. Don Henley, yes. It's the same way. It does seem like the voice is perpetually on the cusp of uh, giving out, but it doesn't. And in fact, it's quite powerful. I always thought Don Henley sounded like Harvey Keitel looks. <laughs> That's a very... All right, and I can't even I can't immediately pull uh, pull Don Henley to mind because of my general dislike of the Eagles. Gotcha. But uh, not that I hate them. Some people hate them, and I'm not one of them. I just don't think about them. They're America's so, bird. What was that? They're America's bird. I don't know why I said that. I felt yeah. like I had to say something. I guess so. Yeah. But you know what? In talking about you know raspy voices, they're going to give out like my favorite musician's Tom Waits. What am I talking <laughs> about? There you go. You know um, the epitome of rasp, among other things. Um, but uh, okay. So we're going to get uh, right into it, and I will explain what we're doing here. So a couple years ago, uh, listeners may recall that I gave uh, my testimony. Now, what is that? What is a testimony? It, it is, in the Christian world, it is basically a person telling their the story of their faith, the story of their spiritual life. Now, what it often winds up being is autobiographical, they... You know, in my case, certainly, I felt the need to give some background uh, to my life so that when the time came and I became and I officially became a Christian, uh, you know, there were people could maybe realize how I got there and and it might have might help to inform some of the struggles that I have now that I am a Christian. And so uh, so that was um, that was a couple years ago. And I recently hit on the idea of inviting other people on the show that had previously been on, so people had uh, an awareness of them already, uh, inviting people on to uh, to give their testimony as well. And it is not a small thing. It's not, a, it's not something done lightly um, because it requires a... First off, it requires a person to talk about themselves, and not everybody has started two podcasts and is comfortable doing that. Um, but, uh, but it also requires a... It, Maybe doesn't require, but I, I think it implies that there's going to be a certain degree of vulnerability on behalf of the speaker and that sort of thing. So, um, so among the uh, the guests that uh, the previous guest that I had in mind, uh, Robert was at the top of the list. Top, uh, yeah. Wow. For a cu- for a couple of reasons. One is that uh, I've known you for a long time and I know aspects about your story, mm-hmm. and uh, they seem to me very interesting. And I feel like the the listeners themselves would would find it interesting as well. Um, but also just, you know, I, uh, I, you might not think this at all, but I feel like you will put it in a, you will put your testimony away in a way that is eloquent and that people will find, hmm. find interesting. And I know that you specifically do not think it's going to be that. I don't, we'll get that. to that more in a moment. So, um, but we'll, we'll start off by, uh, hanging, hanging a lantern on it. Uh, and we'll say this. So, uh, Robert, when I first asked, when I first emailed you and said, "Hey, I'm thinking of doing this," where you would come on and give your testimony, what was your initial response uh, inside? No. Okay. Why? Because uh, I, I guess there's a few reasons. Okay. Um, maybe I won't remember them all, but I'll start by saying that I, I do feel a little uh, inadequate when it comes to. Uh, speaking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel much more comfortable in a room by myself writing with a backspace button. Yeah. You know, if I can edit myself, then that's cool. If I could have written this out 
and just read it or had you read it and I didn't even have to show up, that would have been ideal. Yeah. Uh, but speaking uh, publicly, this feels public because I know people are going to be listening to it. Right. Or I assume. Maybe they won't. And I'm all the better for that. Are you saying that my show doesn't have an audience? Are you criticizing me? Absolutely not. That's how I'm choosing to take it. Uh, it's almost a wish in this oh, case. All right. um, because I, I, I do feel that there's... The, the, I believe that there is... A, you asked me this before the show, and I believe that there is a necessity for vulnerability mm-hmm. and openness and honesty. And I, f- I feel like that I'm that, that type of person. But, I, but when it comes to matters of faith... It matters of um, how, the kind of events that have happened in my life that have affected my faith, or you know, vice versa. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always been reticent to really be open with people about those things because they're they're personal, mm-hmm. um, but they're also uh, because they're tied to faith. It requires a certain. I, I've always felt like I'm not being eloquent right now. I don't think, but I, I feel like there's sort of a requirement that that person be fully prepared to say those things in a certain way because the person is asking you. Mm-hmm. And if they're asking you about that, then they must have some kind of need that maybe your story could help them with. And mm-hmm. it, it puts you in a position of um, of uh, needing to be right. Hmm. And needing to be right is something that it's like a core motivation in me. Uh, I, it's not that I hate to be wrong. It's just that I hate to be found out that I was wrong. Mm. And that has everything – that runs the gamut from um, facts about something yeah. to um, responsibility over somebody's sense of well-being about something. Okay. Does that make sense? Oh, uh, well, absolutely. Um, just I know that for myself, you know, that because – <laughs> I feel like, especially in a context like a, like a podcast where, you know, you have a microphone in front of you, and so the implication is you feel like you deserve to have a microphone in front of you. Exactly. And, and that, so that's the other, one of the other two or three things that yeah. I, I never feel like, and I mean, I've been on your podcast now, this is, I guess, the third or fourth time, mm-hmm. and every single time, every next time has not felt any different in that regard I, I, I never feel like oh i've graduated to feeling like no i no, of course people want to hear what i have to say about a movie yeah um that's just it that, that this is it's so odd for me to say yes to something um wherein i have to speak out about a film i don't think people really care what i have to say about a movie like mm-hmm. looper or black swan or everybody allen movie. everybody yeah. allen movie that one i really enjoy talking about once you once i kind of got going i probably yeah. talk too much but um, but even more so, if it's something, if it's just me talking about me, mm-hmm. who who would really care? Uh, and, and, that, and that question is reverberating, just bouncing around like a basketball in a gym, you know, in my head right now. I don't, and that's, I can't fathom that anyone really cares. Well, and that's the thing is, as time has gone on, uh, listeners know of my uh, crippling insecurity. Um, and paranoia and just, the th- and some of the stuff, you know, that I worry about is like, oh, you know, people don't like me. People don't accept me. People think I'm not good enough or whatever. And, uh, and I've gone to a number of counselors uh, about that. And, uh, it's interesting. One of the things that 
uh, certain counselors said was because so many people said like people like you people you know this yeah. and that and then one counselor said yeah not everyone's gonna like you so now what bless her was that a, a her or him it was a him bless him because that, that's that's what everyone needs to hear yeah it's just because that and that to me meant so much more because so many people that in an attempt to overcorrect your negativity they will be extra positive right but they'll be they'll be hyperbolically positive they'll be positive in a way that your mind is like well you've gone too far it's not possible that everybody that there's somebody that every single person in the world likes it's not possible right. it can't happen um and even the people that Let's say, theoretically, it was possible that there's somebody that everybody likes. That person, at some point, is going to anger someone. And in and at least for a moment, that person will not be liked by somebody. Sure. And so, so rather than just try to say, like, oh, everyone likes you. Like, rather than do that, I appreciated that he said... Some people might not like you. Well, I mean, most people probably, most people that you meet, most people that are that claim to be your friend, probably genuinely are your friend. Some people might be frustrated by, by you on a regular basis, oh, absolutely. and that's okay. What what is why is that the end of the world? Yeah. And so, in the spirit of that, I will say that like it's entirely possible that there are people that will see that this is a testimony episode. This is a strong this is emphasis on the Christian, not the movies part, mm-hmm. uh, and they might say, "I'm tuning out. I'll I'll tune in for the next one." Sure, uh, but that's not a reflection on you. Um, that's a reflection on, you know, just what people come to the podcast for. And right. it's, you know, and hopefully that, that can, that, that idea is maybe freeing to you to just say like, okay, you're going to say what you're going to say and people are going to respond or they're not. Right. And, and that's all right. Well, um, one, one of the other things that makes me trepidatious about this entire endeavor is that, <clears throat> and I, I believe you mentioned this in, in your testimony, which I listened to again recently, um, it's this this fear of being discovered as a fraud mm-hmm. that you. F- I feel like at the at the risk of this becoming a therapy session, Tyler. Um, These tend I, to turn into that kind sure. of thing. Yes. Um, I I I do feel like just my default on m- most aspects of my life. I feel like a fraud. I feel like if if someone really pressed me for this or that, I would I would be discovered to not really know that much about that, or to not yeah. really have a a, a well thought out opinion about that thing or to uh, you know all those sorts of things just sort of play into my fear of talking about about this yeah um and that's that's also married to i could, now I, I realize i could keep going on the reasons why i didn't want to do the podcast um it's meant but, to be a jumping off point well i, sure. I will move us along when we yeah. when we have to but um, continue but i I'll, I'll stop at this one and that is that because of that fear of basically it's fear of responsibility for someone else's mortal soul you know is when, mm-hmm. when you know the, the the desire to like keep things to yourself i should say me this i i just had this overwhelming need to keep it keep my faith close to we did i think we did this last time close to my vest or chest i can't remember oh uh, yeah no, in any case i still my, don't know my chest and vest no. um they're in the same I, I always wear a vest just so i can say both <laughs> perfect um and and so I, I I tend to default toward even when I'm in conversations at work about religion or God, um, I I find myself uh, leaning toward the broader kinds of statements. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll talk about myself obviously, but I won't go deep into it because um, because I'm, a, I'm I'm kind of afraid 
um, I, I guess everyone is to a certain degree of being found out to actually believe in that thing yeah. that so many people in our culture are now just kind of spouting out is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I haven't been vocal about my faith outside of generalities in most cases. So uh, to know that I'm going to come on your podcast to say yes to your podcast means being very specific mm-hmm. about what's happened in my life, what's shaped my reasoning behind believing this, what shaped my emotional reaction to this stuff or the need for it or those moments when I severely doubt it. Um, All of those things, just you you can't not talk about it if you say yes to coming on the podcast to say, I'm going to talk about my faith. Um, And on top of that, on top of all that, which has been sort of a lifelong set of issues, um, I, I... I don't know how deep I'll get into this, but I've just experienced one of the worst weeks of my life in in response to memories to things that happened in the past, hmm. um, mostly, and current and ongoing um, feelings of of failure. <laughs> well, perhaps not a therapy session. Well, in the spirit, you know what? Let's treat this like a movie. Okay. Let's have this, the, the, the terrible week you just had. That will be the framing device. Okay. You've now mentioned it without going into specifics. So now we'll, we'll end on it. Okay. So now let's use that to go back. Robert, I'm going to take you back. <laughs> I feel a dissolve coming on. <laughs> um, and so, you know, let's find out a little bit about you, you know, Biographically, um, okay. you know, and and some of this you might have said on your first appearance. But, I believe I did. You know, we talked at length about yeah. certain. Did I mention how uh, Louisiana should be pronounced as Louisiana and not Louisiana because there's an I in it? Uh, if you're from there, yeah, and you still say Louisiana, mm-hmm. then I, I don't know what to think about you. So I will move on. So so you are from Louisiana originally. Whereabouts? Uh, I'm from Bossier City, which okay. is a smaller town next to the bigger town called Shreveport, which more people okay, have heard yeah. of. Um, a lot of people say they they drive through Shreveport because it's on Interstate 20, okay. <clears throat> passing through from Texas to points east. Um, but I'm from Bossier City. That's where I grew up, went to school, went to high school. Um, I went to college in Shreveport after a brief stay in Alexandria. Actually, it was Pineville. Similar situation, smaller town, extra bigger town. Mm-hmm. I, I went to uh, my senior year of high school um, in Pineville, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so, so yeah, I spent my, my entire childhood there in Louisiana. Um, as far as uh, parents and, uh, and siblings, can you can – because you, uh, I know some of that will – Come into play uh, sure. as your as your story uh, unfolds. Uh, what was your situation there? Um, mom, dad, all the way th- all the way through up to about thirteen or okay. fourteen. Um, had a, an older sister and an older brother. Okay. Um, went to church. My mom took us to church. My dad stayed home. Okay. That sort of situation. He would okay. go sometimes, and there was a point where he had kind of a conversion ish experience. Okay. The only. Um, outward evidence of that was the fact that he started going to church for a little while. Okay. Um, I don't know. He's passed away now. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I, I believe that he died a believer 
but there were, without getting into too too much detail, that he, I don't know that he really changed that much. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have to change? Maybe this could be a point of conversation for us. I mean, yeah. um, I don't know, but but yeah, my mom would take us to church, so I went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday yeah. night, Wednesday, yeah, uh, at the Southern Baptist Church there in uh, Bossier City, and. Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't. I don't know what else to say about that. That. Well, I do know that. Uh, okay, so a, a little bit of uh, not necessarily background, but uh, a fun fact. Robert Hornack, fun fact. Um, I'm, I'm dying to hear this. I. Uh, so you did some stand-up comedy recently, and I went and saw it, and it was great. Thank you. And I'm not the only person that said that. If I'm not mistaken, your stand-up comedy teacher also acknowledged that it was he really did. great. He did. It was very kind of him. And he couldn't stop swearing about it. Yeah. Um, he may have had a few drinks. Haven't we all? I didn't. I was stone-cold sober. And st- still was laughed. I. Still laughed. Still laughed. Good. Thanks. Um, but I noticed in your, in your, uh, in your stand-up, you, you know, a lot of it was uh, you know, not necessarily self-deprecating, but it was about your life and, you, and yourself. It wasn't you know, about... You know, you ever notice uh, socks, you know, or whatever. Um, but I noticed in your stand-up you mentioned Southern Baptist a lot hmm. uh, being this formative thing. Now, of course, you used it to set up a joke, but also even before you and I started recording this, you mentioned – and by the way, no offense to any Southern Baptists out there Absolutely because it, it can be different from city to city as far as I can tell. Uh, as I have mentioned before – I grew up in the Nazarene Church, which I found out later is apparently really like a lot of people say, "Oh, I grew up Nazarene." Man, they're so against movies. I was like, "Really? Wow." I got. I guess I got lucky with the several Nazarene churches I went to. Huh? You know, and so you. So it's different from church to church. I don't want to speak about the denomination in general, but I will say that, like before we started recording, you said that you you being raised Southern Baptist was formative in a, in a number of ways, even in so far as how you define testimony. Right. And so, like, can you talk about some of that, like, either positive or, or negative, like, just how you, when you think back now to right. your Southern Baptist upbringing in your town, the way you were brought up, uh, do you have any, do you feel like it was really formative to who you are now and what your faith is now? Well, I do, I do, I do think that. Um, I, I grew up um, in a, I, I was lucky, I was kind of like you in the Nazarene church. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church that now looking back on it, given, having moved out of the South, um, I recognize now is not the typical or stereotypical Southern Baptist church. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly we were members of the Southern Baptist convention and, uh, adheres to the, adhered to the laws, you know, that they, that they dictated and all that stuff. I don't really know and understand even to this day, the politics of all that. Nevertheless, um, when you're growing up in it, um, and you don't know any other way, there's, I, I guess this is true of any other any other thing in your life. It's like that's that's just the way it is, and um, you know I look back on it now and I get I'm a Presbyterian now, mm-hmm. um, and there there I I believe that from my childhood memory I think is somewhat warped in terms of how I think about the Southern Baptist Church based okay. on the fact that I'm now so far away from it having mm-hmm. not been a part of it and i think some of the stereotypical essence of what the southern Baptist church is to culture has seeped back in yeah and into what you think of it into what i think of the southern Baptist church which is completely unfair because a church that i went to 
was not the kind where the, the guy was up there and he was just like fire and brimstone, um, thou shalt not, you know, all that kind of stuff. It yeah. was a very easygoing kind of church, mm-hmm. um, a very uh, God-centered, Christ-centered, um, teaching-type church as opposed mm-hmm. to a black and white thou shalt not yeah. type church. And so in that respect, I feel like I'm, I'm lucky. But in in comparison now to the Presbyterian church, it was a lot stricter. Yeah. Um, I will say this, that I was, we were talking about this the other day, uh, Aubrey and I to a, a couple friend of ours. And I remember if I saw, when, when I was going to the Southern Baptist church, if I, if I saw a guy outside, standing outside of the church smoking, I thought, wow, what happened to that family? <laughs> Seriously, smoking. Yeah. Um, or if I heard one of my friends in the youth group swear, I was like, wow, that's just like major trepidation. It's like, you're going to hell, dude. Yeah. Um, and I, I think despite the fact that there was, a, 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 compared to the stereotype, there was an easygoing nature to the church, I, I, I think that I did still walk away from being a Southern Baptist with kind of a knee-jerkish kind of reaction, mm-hmm. set of reactions to certain things like swearing or drinking or smoking, to this day, to this day, you, wait, so you, I have to fight against. It. I'm not saying that I, I judge people now based on it, right. but it, it's a, it's an initial thing. I think that is sort of in my DNA, and it's I I do believe that I I came away from my experience growing up in Louisiana and going to a Southern Baptist church um, with certain knee jerk reactions to certain things that I've since outgrown. Yeah, um, to a certain degree. Um, yeah, insofar as anybody can, like when you grow up with something like. You always kind of have it. Mm-hmm. Like, that's your instinct, and then your intellect has to say, no, no. Yeah. It's fine. Right. You know. Not that not that smoking is fine, by which I mean... Right. Like, I don't. I don't necessarily. I don't necessarily judge somebody morally, but it's just like it's really bad for you. Like it's, that's just you know. it. It's, yeah, it's a health and, thing. Uh, it's not a yeah. It's but that's a soul just, thing. It's yeah. a health thing. So I do feel like sometimes you know, Christians in an attempt to be uh, to emphasize like no, no, I'm not. I'm not judging. It's like oh, okay. You can still maybe point out that it's not good for a person. Like sure. that's, that's okay. But you know, in your last paragraph, uh, it gave me time to reflect on the last ten minutes of my conversation. Okay. And I, I feel like I need to say that. I feel like I'm being a little bit too blanket, okay, or general with some of those things. I mean, it, I think I, you've I think you've couched it very adequately in your own experience. There you go. That's good because sure. it, it's not like everyone there's a redneck, right? Um, there, most of my friends are that are even you know they're still there, highly educated, very respectful, and people loving people. <laughs> you know that yeah. kind. Of, so yeah, there is such a thing as as you know like a southern hospitality, and that's the thing is like I know that I myself fall into. I fall into a trap. I've done it on this show. I've done it on the other show. Anytime I need to, I go into the character of a dumb person. <laughs> the person could be from anywhere, but I do a Southern accent. You gotta. You know, and I feel terrible about that in the moment. It's, and I find it's my instinct. It's like, oh, that's, that's a very elitist attitude of mine. And even though I lived in, in Southern Missouri for a short time, and I did run across a couple things here and there, it's like, oh, wow, that's a surprising number of confederate flags here um yeah. you know and stuff like that and i and i did hear the n-word uh, thrown around by a couple people sure. and uh some people uh, that were uh, my friends and uh and it's just like okay well this is certainly different than you know denver which is the biggest right. city i i where i lived at the time um and so yeah it's it's hard to you know when you have these experiences 
it's easy to say, well, I assume every southern little little southern town is like this as well. But that's not necessarily the case, and I think right. you've I think you've done a good job of just saying, well, this is my, what my experience is. Yeah, I will say if this is uh, any kind of a band aid over anything I had have said that, and this is the truth. Um, when I hear, as you can tell from my own the way I talk, I don't have a southern accent anymore. I had a small one then because um, I can hear myself on videotape, you know, mm-hmm. from the from the time, and it's you know it's there, and yeah. uh, I, I lost it somehow somewhere. Um, but when I hear a Southern accent, it's, there are a few things that are more comforting to me, Hmm. especially if it's an older man or an older woman, um, and they have a Southern accent. There's just something extremely warm and I just want, I just want to hang out with those people. Oh yeah. It's weird. One of my favorite documentaries is, uh, have you seen Vernon, Florida? No, I haven't. It's a movie about redneck people. <laughs> it's a really small town, but they have their passions, and it's an Errol Morris documentary. Oh, okay. Errol well. Morris. So he and you know he does them right. It's like a second or third documentary he made, real low budget, um, but it's all about these southern bad, not southern bad, these southern Florida Floridians and their various passions. And I love that movie. Um, I, I'll say it first and foremost because I love listening to the accents of these people. It's a different accent because it's not a Louisiana accent, mm-hmm. but. Um, just the way they talk. I just love hearing colloquialisms, southern southern people talking southern oh, to each other. It's just one. The one me. that gets me. The one that uh, to this day, like when if Jen and I go back and visit my mom, wait, wait, in, where uh, is she? In Nixa. Oh, my in, mom's in, in Nixa, Nixa okay. Missouri, and uh, we go back to the little like ninety uh, person church and that kind of thing. A lot of people are, are older and they and they're just oh they're so happy to see me. They were all yeah. They're always so they were incredibly encouraging. Even the older folks that you would think would be anti-movie, were so excited, so happy for me. And it was great. Uh, but the thing that I always look forward to hearing is, oh, bless your heart. Oh, sure. Bless and just heart. like, yes, bless my heart. Please bless my heart some more. Please, yes. Because <laughs> nobody's blessing me at all in Los Angeles. Give me a hug, please. Um, but uh, so, and, and I will move us on. But uh, but yeah, it's I think it, it's important to know culturally where a person comes from, not merely you know the the direct culture of location and and that sort of thing but also the there is a church culture and it's different depending on where you you know where you live and so uh, i thought that that might be uh, something important can to, i take a to make a little sidebar by all means comment um one of the first uh feature scripts that i wrote was something called sunday school pants yeah um subsequently made into a very low budget movie uh, on video by me and uh it's all about my – it started off as all about my Southern Baptist experience because I wanted to make this kind of scathing, satirical comment. I don't even remember exactly why or what my motivation was, but I felt like that somehow – I think it was during the transition to to uh, more of a, a different frame of mind from the Southern Baptist frame of mind. And I thought, well, I can really skewer the way those people think, you know, and I don't really know why I wanted to do that. Nah. So I started the script, and it was really kind of mocking of – Southerners. Mm-hmm. It was mocking of people who, who were Southern Baptists, and I. The more I got into it, the more compelled I was, to. Take these characters from the stereotypes I initially wrote, to real people, and in order to do that, it made me think about, those people, mm-hmm. and it made me think about how they were probably more than I remember them. Yes, and. It helped to, dare I say, heal hmm. 
a bit of maybe some negative feelings that I was having about having grown up in that church vis-a-vis maybe what I was seeing in the broader culture of L.A. or um, I don't Speaking of documentaries about the South, there's one that I recommend that you see and that the listener sees. It's a really wonderful film called Searching for the Wrong-Eyed Jesus. Wow, I've never heard of that. And it was, uh, I don't think it was, no, I think it was directed by the guy that made uh, the new Amityville Horror, which Mm. I hear is terrible. But, uh, But it is somewhat the brainchild of a musician that I love named Jim White. Uh, and so there are some, there are musical performances, but also it's more just an exploration of the American South and what that means as opposed to what we all think it means. Um, and you know, we all think it means a bunch of white people that are obsessed with, you know, God and guns to quote a, a politician. Um, and just like, and some of it is that, but some of it is not. And the film really wants to explore that, like, yeah, there's more to this. Sometimes it's, you know, because some people might even think of the South as like, oh, it's just a simpler, easier, more wholesome place. Like, no, there are terrible people here, just as there are in New York. There's a right. 30 Rock episode about that. Um, and just like, but also, they're not all hicks. And just because they have this accent doesn't mean they cannot speak intelligently and that they don't have the same the same way of thinking as, as you know, the rest I, of us. Talk about a backhanded compliment. Uh, I remember when I was working on CSI Miami and it came to the uh, attention of one of the writers that I was from the South. Um, he came up to my desk and he said, I heard you're from, uh, from Louisiana, is that right? I said, uh, y- yes, I am. He said, where's your accent? I said, well, I, I guess I lost along the way. I, my stock answer is I watched too much TV growing up. Hmm. Which is probably true, actually. Um, and so I, I lost it somewhere. And he said, "Oh well, wow! You you seem like such a an intelligent guy, and such a you know you're, you're really thoughtful, and and uh, you're really making me change my mind about people from the South." I'm like, "Oh, that's great! Thank you." And oh, then you say, "Like that's interesting because you're confirming what I think about Los <laughs> exactly. Angeles people." It was just like, "What do you say to that?" I mean, he he essentially wrote off everyone that I know and love. Yeah, from my family and friends. In the South, I'm the good one. Yeah, it's. I was like, but what can you say? I mean, you're subservient to this guy. And yeah, say, thank yeah. you very much. I appreciate that. I'll let everyone know that you hate them. <laughs> yeah, it's. It is fascinating how people think that's because I get it as a. I get it from time to time as a as a Christian and as a conservative. People are like, you know, really, it's like I, 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 I've been introduced as one of the good ones wow, uh, to other just... people, and I want to be like. You know, I'm the first one to acknowledge that there's a lot of problems with the church. Don't get me wrong. I, I mean, I've spent a long time on this podcast talking about that. But, come on. Like, it just fascinates me. It's like, oh, it's one of the good ones. Like, can't that be said about every single group of humans ever, that there are the bad ones and the good ones? Right. And just like, but we, but there are certain groups that depending on what groups we're a part of, we just say, oh, well, this whole group is bad. And if there's somebody there, that's the exception that proves the rule. Right. So, uh, but moving on. Um, human nature to categorize people and to stick to that the rest of your life. Yeah, it's easy. Extremes are easy, as I say one, uh, over and over again. But, um, so, okay. So, uh, moving on, and we definitely do need to be, uh, to be moving on. I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I did want to really bring it up because, it, you know, it's amazing how formative that kind of thing can be. Um, so, okay. Raised in the church... Mom and dad, dad not that interested, mom 
you got to be there three times a week at least. Uh, probably a vacation Bible school in there somewhere, you know, in of the course, summer. Every single summer. Every single summer. Uh, yeah, it's all so, so familiar. Yes. Um, and probably to a number of listeners as well. Um, and so, like, at what point did your faith become a real thing? Because I know, and maybe it was the whole time. For me, it was a thing that, like, yes, I accepted it as true, but it didn't mean anything. It did. It was not something that required active participation on my part. It was a place that I went, and yes, I believed these things, but I didn't understand any ramifications of it or anything like that. So, like, what did that? What did your faith mean to you growing up? Boy, that's a really hard question to answer. Um, because I, I, you you mentioned this in kind of the run up to conversing about this that. Um, I grew up with a, a different idea of what the word testimony means. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, in the parlance of the Southern Baptist Church, a, a testimony is that moment when you decided to uh, to ask Jesus into your heart, which is the, that's parlance as well. It's yeah. it's church speak for I'm going to start in this road where I, you know, where faith matters. Yeah. Um, but when people ask you in the Southern Baptist, I, I want to stop saying Southern Baptist Church because this is a lot of churches. Yeah, yeah, um, a lot of denominations. At this point, we can probably say the church. The in church. general. Uh, what a lot of people mean when they say the church, when they say, "What's your testimony?" or "When what's your testimony?" is they mean, when, "When was that moment when you did that?" Yeah, and and so that was another trepidation in coming onto the podcast is because I'm thinking. Do I really want to talk about that moment? Because in the grand scheme of things, that moment feels a little bit, uh, a little small. Uh, meaning, I was twelve. Yeah. And there was a moment when, to use another church idiom, uh, I walked the aisle. You know, and it was during a yeah. revival week, which yeah. is another are, great church. It's all happening. Yeah, exactly. So, so they bring in another preacher to really lay it on on, and this guy was. More of a fire and brimstone kind of guy. Yeah. And looking back on, I'm not sure why they would bring that guy in when our normal, the normal tone of a service is much more instructional. It's much more teacher-ish. Um, um, let's dissect a, a set of verses, kind of thing. And right. how does this apply to your life? This guy comes in, and he's pointing at the youth group, you know, and <laughs> saying, "If you don't change your life, you're going to hell." That kind of thing. Yeah. And it's not that I had not heard those things before. Um, but there was something about this one particular guy and the way he was he was presenting it that um, I don't want to say I was frightened into walking the aisle, but I was frightened into walking that okay. walking the aisle. Uh, and in a certain way of looking at it, there's there's nothing wrong with it. It's it's speaking a truth about something that we believe as Christians, yeah. right? As Harsh as it is, if you're going to say you're a believer, that's part of what you're saying you believe. Yeah. Which is, if you don't make this decision, then there's an eternal ramification for that. Yeah. And it's either black or white. You know, it's either... And a number of Christians, myself included, don't like to talk about it. It's hard to talk about. Because we don't want to sound like the guy, not necessarily this guy, but we don't want to sound like the person that is banking on people's fear. Exactly. It sounds like we're... spiritually blackmailing them or extorting them extorting them uh, yeah. into 
into this belief system. And mm-hmm. incidentally, we'd like 10% of your money, you know, that right. kind of thing. And There's so, like, a lot of cynicism as I look back on that, that style yeah. of, of preaching, uh, on that style of calling people to the altar. Yeah. There's another one. Um, it's it's a, a, a 100% less nuanced version of Billy Graham. Yeah. Billy Graham is the same. I mean, he wants the ultimate thing that you do is to come down the the bleachers at the you know at the stadium down to the field and proclaim your belief in God and his saving power over you. Mm-hmm. Um and so he's going to but obviously Billy Graham is much more nuanced. Well, this guy was not that. He yeah. was laying it out there in a very black and white way and I responded by going down the aisle saying I want to be this. Mm-hmm. Um but again, it's not like, I mean, I grew up, I, I don't know a time in my life when I wasn't going to church. Right. And I don't know a time in my life when I wasn't following the rules, easily following the rules, wanting to follow the rules, not being coerced, but just being a nice kid, a mm-hmm. good kid. And so, <clears throat> that moment isn't a fulcrum moment like it is for so many people who have the more dramatic um uh, salvation moment. Yeah. Um, those are the people that get called up, you know, at the actual service, and they say, "Hey, tell us your story," because it's a very dramatic thing. It's a very, yeah. you know, I was a drug abuser. I was a sex addict. I was cheating Kill, on my I wife. killed a guy. I killed a guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was, you know, I, I I ran the ovens at Auschwitz, you know, and then God got a hold of me. Why? Why did I go that far? That was yeah. That was really. <laughs> But that's the thing is, I mean, you hear stuff, you know, I mean, I remember growing up, the big one I heard about was Ted Bundy. Wow. Because Ted Bundy, Te- cause Ted Bundy had, you know, done these terrible, awful things and apparently in prison. He oh, con- did he? he I didn't know this. Yeah. That's the, that's the story anyway. And I, and maybe I looked it up and, I, and apparently it's true. Uh, um, maybe it is. Maybe we can't say. Exactly. You never know. But that's the one It's like, if Ted Bundy can do it, then certainly anybody can. It's just like, okay, well. By the way, it's sidebar and a sidebar. Uh, it took at least five or six years for me to not see Bundy over there near Santa Monica on, you know, driving down Wilshire, see Bundy, not to think of Ted Bundy. Oh, good. Now I don't think of him. But for a while it was Ted Bundy every time I went and down you there. you moved on to Al Bundy from Married with Children. <laughs> Never watched the show. Well, I did some, yeah. but... Um, tangent took me off of my train of thought. Sorry. Um, so let's see, Ted Bundy, uh, Auschwitz... <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- those are the guys that would come up and actually yeah. give their testimony because the testimony was a fulcrum moment in their life. It's yeah. like black. I-, I was black, now I'm white. Yeah. Uh, I was bad, now, I was- now I'm good. I-, I was good, and then I was still good. Yeah. Because I was 12. I mean, I was, I was, you know, and I was a good kid. And so <clears throat> to say that, you know, Christ came into my life and totally revolutionized my way of thinking about all the things I was doing wrong right. would be false to say. And so, if I if I if I walked into a, a, a Southern Baptist church right now, um, and they said give your testimony, I would I would automatically go to that because I think that's probably what they want to hear is that moment that then becomes the rest of your life. Whereas now, you, I believe, especially hearing your own testimony on the podcast. Um, it's obvious that what you mean by testimony is in your life, um, where are those spots where, because of your belief, that has really played a part in decisions that you've made yeah. in the way that you've reacted or not overreacted to certain horrible things that have happened yeah. or 
did or did not acknowledge the awesome things that have happened. Yeah. Um, acknowledge that those were of God. Um, and that's the thing is to me, you know, I feel like we're doing a lot of bashing of a, of a certain uh, certain type of church or a certain type. You know, it really does take all t- all kinds and some people come to Christ hearing about the love. Some people come to Christ hearing about the wrath. And it's entirely possible that though they started in very different places, they might end up in exactly the same place spiritually. Um, and so I don't want to necessarily – it's different for everyone. We all need to hear a different thing right? Um, that gets us to the one thing. And so like – but I will say like that to me is – it's the difference between – like the, diff- the de- different definitions of testimony. Like one is very dramatic, very black and white, very – if you'll pardon me, very simple. Um and that's not it's not mine mine is, is an ongoing process but that's a longer story and in some ways it's not nearly as dramatic right there's the uh, what is the verse I forget the exact phrasing but something about working out your salvation mm-hmm. to me that that speaks to a longer a, mu- a much longer you know process than just walking down the aisle and saying this is what I believe yeah or what I will start to believe um, so to answer your question from however many minutes ago that was like what um what are, what are those mo- – I think you asked, like, what were the, some of those moments that you – oh, no, it was uh, w- at what point do you feel like it became uh, something that was an active yeah. uh, participant, I think was your word, in in how I made decisions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because I was constantly surrounded by believers from a very early age, I feel like I was taught how to make good decisions with or without God. Yeah. Does that make sense? I mean, it yeah, almost yeah. sounds blasphemous to say, but – I mean, there are good people in the world who have never heard of God. So, I mean, yeah. you know, it's it's hard to hard to say that God is or having God in your life is necessarily the thing that's making you choose the right thing. Yeah. Um, so, where where at what point does does it become the active participant, the active factor, a criterion? Um, I think, and I haven't really. Th- thought about that i mean i, I gotta be honest it's one of the things that was makes me nervous about coming on is i don't know that i've really thought out exactly when things happen in my life so but well, but, but i, but I, I have like, an answer i like to ask gotcha questions you got in, me dude in a, in a person's I'm testimony so gotcha. <laughs> um no but i i think my answer is that and this is shocking even to me to say this but i think that it wasn't until i went to grad school hmm. that i really had to apply things yeah um that were there all along. I, I still felt comfortable saying, and still feel, feel comfortable saying to this day that I, I feel like I became a Christian, you know, when, when I walked the aisle when I was 12, because yeah. it was a public thing. Um, it was a, an extremely earnest and heartfelt thing, and it was true. Mm-hmm. There's no reason for me to deny that. I can't deny that because that's the way it was. Um, however, um, when you... When you walk into your same life, then you're not really being challenged. Yeah. And I, th- I think the answer to your question comes when I reflect on when was I first being challenged on the way I was making decisions and 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 uh, all of those things. And I think that it didn't really happen until I went to grad school, believe it or not. And I went to a Christian grad school. Um, but it was the first time that I'd been away from the comfort zone of the kind of church I went to. Yeah. And I went to a, a school that was also believers but they were coming from a myriad different kinds of denominations and backstories and 
and families and uh, cultures. Mm -hmm. And I was confronted with Christians who swore. (laughs) As silly as it seems to sounds to say that that was a problem and a real challenge to me, it was if you're coming from the kind of world that I was coming from. And I hope I'm not putting down people in my world who are still there because I fully respect their world and Mm -hmm. I fully respect them. But it's different when you go to a, a, a uh, a group of people who claim the same things that you're claiming to believe in, but also behave in a way that you were taught never to behave. Yeah, it's how do you rectify that? Yeah, in your mind, and how do you behave around them? Do you are are you as pious? Are you become pious? You know, the, your old way of acting now seems pious because you're saying. I remember confronting my one of my roommates, um, like a few months into uh, my my time there. And he just, you know, used all kinds of language. And I said, how do you, how do you, how can you do that and still feel good about yourself? Right? I don't remember how I, yeah. how I worded it, but, but he, and he was from New York and his family was like, well, there's super, the problem right there. <laughs> right there. Um, he should never have been from New York. <laughs> um, no, but he explained that, that, I mean, this is the way I talk when I'm there with my family and they're all believers and. I'm like, that is, I don't understand that. And he said, well, you, in his New York way, he basically said, well, you need to just get it. You know, that's the way it is. And I had other other friends who drank and other friends who, you know, talked dirty, whatever you want to say. It, yeah. it made less than, less than Christian jokes, you know, or whatever. I don't, I don't know how to say that. But I find that I'm much more like them now. I don't yeah. drink and I don't smoke. Um, but I have drank in the past. Have mm-hmm. drunk in the past? I don't know. Um, who knows? One of the reasons I don't drink Best is so I don't have to worry about the past tense <laughs> exactly. terminology. Very well played and good. Um, but I, I did have that experience. But, and, I, and I was at a Christian school mm. when that happened. And passed that phase where I was like, oh, okay, well, if this is happening, then maybe it's okay. Maybe it's cool. And I tried it and then found that it wasn't for me, yeah. which is weird to say about drinking, given my backstory in Southern Baptist, I should have known anyway. No. And I did, but I tried it, and then I gave it up. Well, and that's the thing, is like, in that moment... And I'm, I, I want to say, as an addendum to that, I don't think I'm better for having given up drinking. I still have drinks every now and then. Yeah. Um, I have some friends who drink a lot. I have a lot of friends who drink a lot. Yeah. Um, and I, I... Part of me feels disappointed because I feel like that's still, in a, on a certain level, it, it is the wrong kind of escape. Um, yeah. But I'm much. But you less would think that th- there are plenty of non-Christians who think like, eh, maybe that person's had a few too many drinks. Like, sure, exactly. Like you don't have to be Christian to acknowledge like eh, this can be destructive, right? Yeah. So, yes. but yeah, and so really, it sounds as though your faith became a very real and tangible thing. It was always real and tangible, but it became a thing that required something of you, uh, in which you became an active participant when. When you realize that it that faith was more than simply a set of rules, the, the list of rules that the things you can't do. When people right. talk about the list of rules, they almost never talk about the things you can do. It's <laughs> almost always the th- or the things you should do. It's don't always do. stuff you don't can, do. You can't. Um, well, what do I do? Yeah, I don't know. Just don't do. Don't do. Yeah, and just and so like yeah, just the way you characterize it is just the guy who always says "Thou shalt not." It's like Man. it's in the Bible. Can't argue with that. There's a lot of other stuff in the Bible as well, and that doesn't negate the "thou shalt not." But there's other. But then what? You right. know. And so it seemed to be that's the thing is you asked, 
and then what? You know, uh, and that's when we get, you know, to somebody like the character, you know, the character of Christ and, and who he was in that. Yes, he did. Like, that's the thing is in Los Angeles, I find myself often having to push against the different, a different attitude in which they're like, ah, you know, Jesus loves everything. So do what you want. It's like, well, that's not necessarily how it works. And they, they talk about like, Hey, he who's without sin casts the first stone. It's like, yes, okay, fair enough. And he did shame the crowd away. And then what did he say to the woman? He said, go and sin no more. So he does have an opinion about this other thing. Of course. But that's not the only opinion and vice versa. And so, um, but that's that's neither here nor there. So let's, so okay, so let's let's go to grad school. Um, it was a film school, so I, I, I it, I couldn't at the time. I couldn't find. A f- I, I was interested in film, but I I couldn't find. There wasn't a film. This kind of dates me a little bit, but it um, there wasn't really a film school to go to in Louisiana. So I went ahead and went to college and went went ahead and got a degree because I couldn't afford to go out of state mm-hmm. for anything. I couldn't make that work, and so I went to Louisiana State University in Shreveport. It was a branch. Sorry, it was a branch campus of the main LSU campus mm-hmm. in Shreveport, and that's where I met some of the most amazing friends I. I've ever had and still have. Um, and then I, four years down the road, I got a little financial act together, I guess. I can't re- remember the details, but I found a, a relatively in- inexpensive film school that was a grad school, mm-hmm. you know, in Virginia Beach. So I went to Virginia Beach and and what, I didn't get my degree, but I took a bunch of film courses there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the challenge, challenge that we're talking about kind of mm. happened was when I moved to that school. It was, it was away from home. It was the first time I'd been away from a comfort zone of home and church and found a new group of friends, new church, new denomination. Yeah. And things kind of changed. Man, I, I, I thought you had your film degree. I feel like... Maybe we should end this. Wow. <laughs> I, only, I, I only have people on that have film degrees. Um, I'm only a couple of classes away, believe it or not. Well, get to it. I, but there I'm were classes saying. I didn't want to take, so I, I, I think I may have said this in the last, last time I was on, but just real briefly, I took that money that would have gone to tuition, and me and my friend bought film stock yeah. and rented a camera and made a movie. So yeah. and after it, a it was still point, school. Like, yeah, after a certain point, it's just like, if you feel like, some schools are such that like, if you feel like you, you got what you needed and just like, all right, well, if, yeah. after a certain point, this might be a waste of money yeah. and I only have so much. And, and you kind of just need to be hands-on eventually. Yeah. But um, I do have an impulse at some point to maybe want to teach, hmm. in which case I would need to, I don't even know if I can anymore, but like fulfill that degree and then, uh, and then do that. But what would you teach? Film, <laughs> oh. writing, writing. I would like okay. film or, or film history. I'm, I'm a big fan of Fair old enough. movies and the history of film. You could be a like a cool high school teacher who's like instilling a love of film in, in uh, you know in the next generation. bored and passive students. And then uh, and then we win the championship at the end of the movie. Yeah, the film championship, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that is. Um, we win can somehow the Palm Door or something. Wow, that's really that's a, <laughs> this group of ragtag kids who knew nothing of film before win the Palm Door can. Always ragtag groups. Anyway, ragtag. Um, so okay, so I do want to go back and uh, talk about some stuff that maybe isn't a hundred percent pleasant. Um, 
because there's a lot of that actually. Yeah, and so I'm gonna maybe let you lead with some of it because I don't want to necessarily bring up uh, all of it because I don't know maybe something's off limits. I don't know. So, um, but what I will say is that you know I, I've in my mind now because you mentioned the uh, the, te- the the definition of testimony. What is that? And so many people, like you said, so many people say, well, it's the story. It's everything that leads up to the moment of your conversion, and then that's it, and then your conversion, and then it's over. It's like that's not how it works at all, in my in my opinion. Some people that might be their definition. That's fine. No, I couldn't believe that as well. To me, asking somebody about their testimony is like asking somebody about their marriage. No one would say, "Well, we dated, and you know, and then uh, we planned, <laughs> so we true. got engaged, and then we got that's married, great. and uh, that's the story of my marriage." It's like not at all. Yeah. The, like, by all means, you will tell the story of dating, and you will tell the story of the the wedding itself. How you met. But then you'll move on, and you'll tell about the the actual marriage, what it really means, and so, and the ups and downs of of that. You know, uh, if somebody's asking about your marriage, they want to know, they want to know what it is, what it, what it's like day to day and overall, and so, so that's that is very much what I. What I mean when I'm talking about a testimony, that means, you know, the moments of, for lack of a better term, triumph, the moments of encouragement, but also the moments, not merely the struggles, you know, the the temptations, because everybody, they're the temptations that all of us have, like pride issues and stuff like that. But then then there's specific things like gossip or lust or, you know, intense, uncontrollable anger or any number of things. Um, and so we, we might get to that a little bit later, but it's also the story of, you know, just because you're Christian doesn't mean that life won't happen and, you know, tragedy, but also, you know, great things like finding somebody you love and getting married and then tragedy, like, you know, losing a loved one and and that sort of thing. And so, uh, I wanted to talk about some of those events in your life and, uh, and, the impact that they had on your faith and the impact that your faith had on your response to them. Um, and so you, you mentioned that uh, you and I have talked about your dad. Um, and I, rem- I, I'll be honest, I don't remember a lot of specific details, but I know that uh, it was a rather tumultuous uh, relationship with him. Um, are you okay? That's do you incorrect. Wanna- what was that? I leaned forward like I was on. Like, oh, okay. At, at a- Senate committee hearing. I lean forward. That's not correct, sir. I'm sorry. I, because I, I wouldn't characterize it as tumultuous. Okay. All right. I would characterize it as bordering on non-existent. Oh, okay. Well, there's that. For me, because um, just to get into it a little bit, and I don't know how much detail I'll go into, but okay. it's at the same time, it feels a little ridiculous to be coy about certain. It's like, oh, and then something happened, <laughs> and then everyone hated somebody. You know, why, why would you... <laughs> Why am I here? You know, yeah. Why am I? I'm, I'm going to try to be honest without. Yeah. And by all means, go into as much detail as you feel comfortable. Because that's the thing. Well, Stuff like this does affect other people as well. People in your life that may not want you to share certain things, you know, or may yeah, feel there's, hurt. There's been and some so. discussion um, with the parties involved, Your Honor, um, that um, have allowed me to feel more comfortable talking about these things okay. when they're not present. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so... just to kind of lead into it, we talk a lot in church, um, a lot of sermons about what is, how do you respond to God? 
mm-hmm. um, in terms of him being your father. He's referred to as your father mm-hmm. in, uh, in so many verses in the Bible, stories in the Bible, and by so many people that you know. You know, they call him father in mm-hmm. the beginning of a prayer. Um, um, Abba, Father, you know, yeah. the loving um, Father. And, you know, so Father, what, what do you think of when you think of Father in your own life? has a lot to do with uh, or will affect how you define or how you react to that word when it's applied to God who yeah. you're supposed to love and trust and all of those things so my thought when I think of father just like father mm-hmm. if, if the concept is, of father the concept of father is is forever mutilated by my dad my own father and so there's, forgive me if I get a little emotional, but because I, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to say now. Oh, all right. Uh, I know, I know, I know the story, but I don't know how I'm going to tell it. So, okay. my father was uh, distant, to say the least. He, there was something in him that seemed to hate the fact that he had had kids, hmm. and um, my brother, it, it probably started with my brother who is my older brother. He's the oldest of three. Uh, I'm the youngest. Um, my brother was born with uh, mental, a mental handicap, and they didn't really recognize it until he was about two. And my mom tells a story of my dad once they kind of realized that my brother was mentally handicapped and that he had um, muscle issues. In other words, he had cerebral palsy. Mm-hmm. He had issues handling, learning to walk, um, speaking, um, and my father, according to my mother, I was not born yet, uh, essentially rejected him. Yeah. And for the length of time that my dad was in the house, which was until I was 14, um, I only saw my dad talk to my brother in anger. Hmm. Most of the time, it was uh, he just ignored that he existed. Yeah. So, there's... Part A, my brother. Um, Part B, my sister. My dad, uh, with no reason to mince words here, if anyone's listening to this point. Yeah, we're an hour in. Oh, boy. Um, My my father sexually molested my sister um, from a very young age until she was about 12. And this was going on at, at... with the knowledge of my mom at a certain point. Hmm. My mom was... I, I don't even want to begin to peek inside of her brain during those years because yeah. how do you deal with that? Yeah. This was, um, again, to date myself a little bit, it, it was before there were... Uh, it was a lot more ways to get help in that, in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, if that situation is happening now, it's just more open... Society's more open about this thing and people who are doing those things should be I mean it was this it was then there was a, then. yeah there was a, there was a time and there are, and it's frankly there are also maybe places in the country where people just it just, it wasn't on their mind as a viable not a viable option but as a possibility a thing that could happen right um it's like or at the very least it's like that that kind of thing happens in big cities this is a small town we all know each other like that kind of thing can't happen here. Yeah. And yeah, and that is uh, 
based on perhaps location, but also there were there was a time when it wasn't viewed as a thing that could actually happen. It's it's like something out of a monster movie. Well, uh, the bottom line is that I mean, there's education helps anything, and yeah. I think society has been educated to uh, the the widespread nature of that sort of yeah. horrible thing happening, and so then institutions are set up in order to help women and men yeah. to and kids first and foremost to um, exit the situation mm-hmm. um, whether that was available to my mom and she was afraid um, or didn't know how to deal with it but it went on for a while and and I knew about it too but I say but as if there's an excuse f- for anything but but there's when you're a little kid and you kind of get a weird vibe from your dad about your sister mm-hmm. and you're eight let's say yeah you there's part of you that you know is wrong because you've watched TV shows and you can know when a bad guy's a bad guy yeah you know just in a very broad in a, in a very broad sense but and in a more nuanced sense and you're living your life day to day and your dad might be cool with you and still kind of joke with you but there's something different with my sister he still does that you know with my sister too but there's also this other weird vibe mm-hmm. and you're a kid you just it's like anything else it's like you hear all the time you hear about kids who grow up in poverty didn't know it at the time yeah because it's just the way it was yeah that's just how life was oh so we don't get to go out as often as maybe my friend but that's just the way it is in our family yeah well that's just the way it is in our family i guess my i got this weird thing going on i wow i i I feel compelled to say this because it factors into the definition of father vis-a-vis god is that i've i know knew about it when i was a kid because i witnessed it once by Mm -hmm. accident and you know that kind of thing obviously is going to affect you yeah, and have an impact and and then it still went on for for years and I, I i would i i don't i don't really know i just absorbed it mm-hmm. and and then kept being a kid let me describe myself as a kid okay pretty much the way i am now but i was a little kid <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> which is just you say, shorter i was a lot shorter and my hair was a, you know, a lot blonder okay um I didn't comb my hair then either, by the way. Um, Sometimes you got to hold on to old habits. I feel like that I was, I was a funny kid. I was mm-hmm. just a funny kid, and I, I did crazy imitations of the characters I saw on Sesame Street, whatever, mm-hmm. and smiled and laughed a lot. And I think that, without sounding grandiose about it, because I was still just a knuckle-headed kid, but... I th- I think that that helped. It helped that I was kind of goofy, and that even though I kind of knew this about the family, I was still joking around and making my mom laugh and making my sister laugh. I don't remember my dad laughing a whole lot. Yeah. Although he, I I think, looking back on it from years later, he was funny sometimes, and he I think he did have a sense of humor. But I just, wow, just a, a very deformed mind mind that guy had um and 
So he was ignoring my brother. He was molesting my sister. Get this. I got away scot-free. Yeah. Nothing. I was just the third kid. Yeah. And I can't tell you how guilty that made me feel as the years went on. It was like, why, why would such horror befall these people right next to me, but not me? Um, and I don't really know, because I haven't really talked about that a lot, um, how that might affect who I am as an adult. Yeah. But there's a lot of guilt. I just feel guilty all the time. I feel yeah. guilty. Um, and I should say that my sister has moved on. You know, she got tons of therapy, still goes to therapy sometimes when yeah. she feels like she needs it. Um, my my dad and my brother went to a group home when he was like 17 after kind of a violent event, semi-violent event, that altercation between my dad and him. Really? Obviously, my brother was like super innocent. He was just like a, a kid standing there waiting for the bus and... My dad got mad at him about something and pushed him over. Hmm. And my mom heard John fall over, ran to the room, saw my brother on the floor and said, okay, you're out. You're gone. I don't know where she found the strength suddenly out of nowhere, but it all culminated in that moment. Um, I came home from school that day. I was like eighth grade, I guess. And my dad was gone. My dad was gone. Mm -hmm. My dad is gone? (laughs) I'm yeah. like, this is fantastic. Um, obviously, it was it was tumultuous. It was a week where he had the option of coming back to the house to pick up whatever he wanted. So we stayed at my grandmother's house. She lived in the same town, and so we stayed there for a while. And we moved back in to our home, minus my dad, who was yeah. this just stultifying presence all the time, and that's just been just peeled off. And sent away. Yeah. And it was the most liberating thing. You, you hear kids, I, I still hear this, and I never re- respond to it because I know it's a terrible, tragic thing when there's divorce in the family. Mm-hmm. But in my case, it was like, you mean I get to change the channel sometimes too? No. Um, you mean I don't have to bring my dad's mug of soda to him and then refill it like a slave, hmm. you know, the rest of my life? Um, you know, those sound like small things, but. Clearly, there were bigger things, too. Right. Well, and that's the thing, is it fascinates me that you that you say you got off scot-free, and I recognize that maybe from a, in perspective of, you know, what your sister went through and what your brother went through, it seems as though you got off scot-free, but it certainly sounds as though he was rather imposing and, uh, he was, uh, and, he would and make fun. rather tyrannical. Yeah. Again, to, to reiterate something before, I don't want this to be a therapy session, and, and I also don't want it to be a rundown my dad. Right. These are the facts of my life that have informed my faith. Yeah. And um, he he made fun of me in a joking way all the time. Yeah. Um, making fun of how small I was, or at certain points how ununiform the the proportions of my body might have been oh, at yeah. age eleven, which all kids are. Yeah. Yeah. Um. And so, you know, you start defining yourself that way. And I know from your own testimony, and I was really moved by your own story. Um, I haven't listened to it in a while. I don't but totally, you know what, what come part on, of it. You, you know your own story. Just the being made fun of for your size. Yes. I was made fun of for my, for my size. Yeah. From your perspective, it would have been, oh, I would have given anything to be your size. Oh, yeah. I would have been anything to be bigger. 
mm-hmm. so that I could kick that guy who yeah. just made fun of my brother instead of just yeah, yeah. take my brother away. Yeah. And it happened all the time. So, you know, there's there's that connection. You know, anyone who isn't cool-looking or pretty or handsome right away just genetically is what you were talking about in your testimony. Yeah. And what I'm talking about in mine, it's the, the sort of outcasty feeling that you get naturally as a kid when you're not in certain groups. Yeah. And then of course your dad reminding you of it. My all dad the time. reminded me all the time. Yeah. Um and when your dad is the power in the house and when your dad has power enough to be destroying two other lives and also putting putting a fair beating on your own self-respect or self-image um you know it's kind of nice when that's gone and he was gone and it felt wonderful so when i hear kids say or i hear people talk about how awful they felt after their parents got divorced i was like the exact opposite it was like a a liberating free feeling yeah over the next um many years i would call my dad uh, I don't know if it was out of pity or what, or I, I don't really know, but I would call him like a few times a year and send him birthday cards and stuff. And I never let on how I felt about him as I went through the rest of high school and then into college and into grad school. I harbored just the most, uh, in my, in my imagination and in my heart, the most violent, Rage against him, and I wanted him. I I I had images of of killing him, mm-hmm. and Hamlet became my favorite, you know, <laughs> work of literature, yeah. historical literature, or whatever. Um, just the idea of not having to deal with him anymore, not just him being in the house, but having to put on a face because yeah. I, I really did learn how to be a certain kind of person to him over the years. The kind of obliging. Um, good son Um, rather than get the ignoring treatment or you know getting he never beat beat us or anything like that but in any case um, not to get too maudlin or have I already I think perhaps the nature of the story you're telling allows it (laughs) allows a little and and you call me your honor I'm gonna say I'll allow it I'll allow it good so um, but yeah um so he um, he was gone, but there was, and I even you know took bus trips, you know to Waco where he lived in the same town with his mom and, and his brother, and I loved his brother, his mm-hmm. my uncle, just a, a, a and and my grandmother as well. Um, you know they were great people, very generous people, and so I'd go visit them as a triumvirate and put on the face, and I never never. Um, let him know how I felt until maybe many years in. Mm-hmm. Um, he passed away in 2003. Um, do the math. Yeah. It was September of 2003. Yeah, got it. And you can edit out some of these pauses, by the way. That's fine. Because I don't want it to seem like I'm being overly dramatic. Like, And then... Um, because I'm telling the story, it's, man. Tyler shaking. His do, head. do you recognize the story you're telling? Well, it's funny because the it, occasional natural dramatic pause I think is fine and understandable. Yeah. Okay, good. 
Um, in that case, you, instead of the pause... Also, I'm too lazy to edit out pauses. Gotcha. Good. Good. Um, he passed away in 2003, 10 years ago. I'm kind of experiencing this weird um, regret feeling I do every year because the last time that I saw him, um, I'd gone to visit him in... I guess it was it was Christmas, I guess, of 2002. And it was one of the first times that he'd ever talked about his his time in the Air Force when he he wasn't in battle in Vietnam, but he was there and he knew a lot of friends that got killed. And, um, which informs a lot of his later behavior. Mm-hmm. And just being a part of that whole thing, the Vietnam thing, kind of informs a lot of, a lot of veterans' behavior post that time. Yeah. It's never an excuse, but it definitely helps to understand a little bit. So... He started opening opening up and telling stories about things that he had said and done and and even talking about my sister. And um, I'm thinking... Did he initiate that conversation? Um, he opened the door a little bit and okay. then I, I put my foot in there. Okay. Because I was like, without pushing too hard, because you don't, wanna, you don't want that kind of thing to become something that he's... He goes, oh, you're asking too much and then never again. So yeah. you just sort of let him... But he was opening up and I'm like, this is really cool. And so, I, you know, I'm writing in my journal, like, things are really opening up, and this will be really awesome. Like, the next time I see him, it'll be, you know, it'll be cool, because I'll have an end, because, oh, remember you were telling me about that thing? And and in my journal, I'm, I was reading at the time, Wild at Heart, and it's all about, like, men becoming yeah. men, and I don't know how much I agree with a lot of it now. Yeah. But at the time, when you read it, and you're and you're feeling a lot of feelings about who you are as a man... It makes you start thinking about things you hadn't thought of before, so it becomes a really pivotal kind of kind of book. Mm-hmm. And so I'm reading that at the same time that my dad is opening up to me, and I'm I'm getting a new sense of like who I could be as an adult man, you know, and how I'm going to lead a wife when and if I ever find her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I get a call on a Tuesday morning in September, the very next September, and he's gone, or he's not gone. More to that. Okay. Um, but he's collapsed on the floor with a, a brainstem seizure, hmm. which has essentially put a clot at the top of his spine, shutting off any kind of nutrient to his brain. He's hmm. passed out. By the time I get to Waco, it's been a day and a half or so, and the doctors are saying, well, his brain is effectively dead. Yeah. Who he is is effectively gone. His body is still moving or you know running because he's he's got the autonomic system and he's still yeah. So cut to you know the rest of the week. And we've, my sister and I have, you know, made the call. And if he's never coming back per the doctor, then there's no sense in carrying this on. No. Like he's never going to, he's never going to wake up. And so you pull that plug and then you wait. This is probably different from state to state, but in, in, in Texas, you essentially have to, you can't kill a person by injection or whatever it is, but you can sit there and wait for them to die on their own. Yeah. And that's what we did for the next nine days, hmm. 10 days. September 2nd, I guess, is when he collapsed, and September 13th is when he passed away completely. And it was the, the longest bunch of days I had ever experienced because you're in a hospital room or you're at your, your grandma's house, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, just dealing with a ton of emotions in yeah. your uncle's house. And that was wonderful because my uncle is like a treasure trove of stories and he's got this 
steel steel sieve no, steel sieve steel trap <laughs> i'm the steel sieve because i can't remember anything steel it's a woody allen line by the way he he's got a mind like a steel sieve got it which is why i went there um but a steel trap of just all these stories and my uncle was like this storyteller of their days growing up and got to know a little bit more about my dad um now okay so without protracting that too too much he finally passes away um in the midst of that my sister is there you may have noticed that yeah i was was gonna ask about that she's there because she's gone through a lot of therapy and she's made a couple of calls over the over the years trying to break through her own fear of getting close to this guy in any way yeah and the first step is always a phone call and then at some point if you if she decides she'll take that step of going to town having a meeting in a restaurant or something like that um she was inching, inching, inching towards some of that. Well, she decides that she's going to come to town. She's to a point where she's forgiven him to the point of having to forgive him for certain things because she has to move on with her life. Right. But that doesn't necessarily mean going and embracing him and saying everything's okay. Yeah. So to be in her kind of midpoint of mind with regard to the whole thing and to see my sister you know, in a hospital room with my dad dying – and instead of sitting back and going, oh, what a relief. Now I don't have to worry about that. She's, it's more like she's crying, too. Yeah. You know, she's dealing with her own what-ifs. Yeah. And this informs a lot of how I view my sister, how I view forgiveness. Um, is your your sister is a Christian as well? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, Watching my sister approach the bed where my dad is still moving some because of the system and just he sneezes sometimes he sighs heavily and twitch and stuff like that. Well, he will also accumulate stuff around his mouth and nose. And my sister would walk up to his bed and take care of that for him, Hmm. touching my dad, taking care of my dad. Um, is that forgiveness if he's if there's no way for him to respond one way or the other i don't know to me it was the most beautiful side i've ever seen mm-hmm. and so <laughs> that happened um my dad passes away we have a very emotional um funeral for him and uh now 10 years later it's 10 years and i i kind of deal with this Aubrey, my wife, can attest to this. Every year I get a little depressed around this time of year. Even though the situation with my dad was one of the most negative you could possibly paint. Um, It's still this regret. It's still this what could have been, what should have been for my entire childhood. Um, All of it wrapped up in, to boot, all of the negative feelings you feel about about 9-11. If you can imagine, that's true. Yeah, it's like we're sitting around waiting for my dad to die because at some point you're literally, and anyone in the situation will, will back me up on saying this. It sounds crass, but at some point you really just want the guy to die because you know he will. That's what you're waiting on, and you you don't want to see it happening. You want it to be done. Yeah. In any case, when nine eleven rolled around, you know about a week into this, you're like, please God in heaven, do not let him die on nine eleven. Yeah. Because you don't want that. So, you know, the clock ticks to nine twelve, and you're like, okay, now, go go again. You know, now yeah. we're, we're fine with it now. And on the morning of the 13th, we, we walk into the room after it's been a night at my grandmother's, and he's gone. 
Um, and now it's 10 years later. But I think what I was saying was that there's still this weird regret, sadness that has well, to be affixed to the death of your own dad. And it's also, I mean, it's a, it's a mourning process, but it's not merely the mourning of him being gone. It's the mourning of who he could have been, mm-hmm. but wasn't. Yeah. The relationship that was developing, but stopped. And that's key right now. Yeah. Because that's what I was getting to. Um, is, and I, I'm kind of just coming to this conclusion um, now, 10 years later, uh, 10 years of, of kind of going through this cycle of of these same emotions every year and looking back at the journal that I kept, which has some of the most riveting writing I've ever done, and I'm kind of proud of it in a perverse mm-hmm. way because it's coming straight from the gut and the heart. Um, oh, the, but the, the the end result, I think, is that there's a lot of stunted growth on my own part, like in my own life, because because I've allowed... And I, I was talking about this with Aubrey... Um, Wednesday night, which was um, the night of one of the worst days in recent memory, I guess edging back toward um, that night I told Aubrey that I feel like that um, there was there was this feeling like God was opening a door to finally getting to know my dad for being my dad. And for my dad being an actual human being versus this person who did this really awful stuff. Yeah. And for a, a man who may or may not have forgiven himself, I don't know. Yeah. May or may not have um, broken down and cried every single night for all the years after he got kicked out. Yeah. Because of what he'd done, I don't know, because I was not to that point yet. So God, one has to think, arranged for my dad to finally be opening up and then to kill him dead. Right at the most wonderful, you know, yeah. moment uh, of possibility, and so I I didn't really think about it in that way until the last few years, and I really hardcore thought about it for some reason. Now I think because of the the enormity of it being a ten year anniversary yeah. and and all this stuff sort of fed into my thinking about it m- more three dimensionally again, maybe for the first time um, in a long time, and so I thought. And again, this is all feeding into the, the testimony. It's not just therapy because it's right. it's. I think that I was getting to a point myself because of Wild at Heart of all things and my the trip up Pacific Coast Highway that I was taking all by myself and I was doing a lot of soul searching and thinking um, during the months between the last time I saw my dad and when he died. I thought this is a, a great cultivating moment. It's just I feel like I'm growing and I'm. It's obvious in my my journal the kind of things I was thinking about and wanting to launch into that felt cut off yeah. by the fact that my dad died and that that door was slammed shut for some reason. And I kind of allowed the things that I wanted to do and that I felt like God was leading me to in terms of how to think about myself as a man just sort of got soldered yeah. at that moment. And I'm coming around to realizing that I've looked at God, my definition of God, my definition of father, of him being my father, um, still too much with my own dad, and that there's a long way to go, and I probably need a whole new, like, fresh um, uh, string of therapy, uh, you know, 
I don't know what I'm trying to say. Just like I, I think I need to start talking to somebody about this because yeah. it's just kind of a sudden realization that I think that what I was becoming ten years ago um, would have been awesome. Um, and I blame God without blaming Him, and I I don't, and I'm afraid to talk about my my faith openly because I feel like it it's a lie. It's like it's it's me kind of like putting on some kind of false air to talk about a God that I'm supposed to believe in in a certain way. Or that he wants to be believed in in a certain way yeah. um, that I can't seem to do because of the way I still kind of hang on to thinking about my dad and all the non-resolution in that area. So, do you view do you view God as uh, sadistic at all? I think I would have to say that I do. Okay. Um, that there's a sadistic part of him, I should yeah. say, um, because if. I know we've been talking for already way too long. I apologize, but if if we were to go on for another hour, we talked two, two and a half hours about the Avengers. We'll be fine. Um, actually, we talked two and a half hours about Woody Allen. Yeah. All right. There you go. So. Uh, oh, we. Wh- you, you mean the? No, I mean the royal I mean, we. Yeah, yeah. The 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 family of more than one lesson has talked gotcha. longer about less substantial issues. There you go. Uh, we've only been going an hour and a half. Oh wow! It doesn't feel like it. Feels it's, longer or shorter. It feels timeless, Tyler. <laughs> um, but now I've I've lost the train again. That's all right. Um, oh, sadistic, and the idea mm. of God being sadistic. I feel like that my definition of God is like everyone's definition of God, multi-varied. It's, it's multifaceted. Yeah. It's there, but the, but most a lot of people probably wouldn't have a sadistic facet to God. Um, but but now that you ask. And in the context of all that I just described, yeah. and all that was hoped for, and that could have been, it does seem sadistic. And I've said as much without using that word to Aubrey in yeah. moments of despair about all this. That that I feel like that that there's a why would you do that kind of thing. That yeah, there's a there's a <clears throat> not to make light of it. Oh yeah, but there's a strong feeling of like, are you like you've got to be effing kidding me <laughs> right after all those years after all this right now yeah. is when the old clot shows up yeah and just like it, it's just you get so incredulous about it and it's not i'm not going to say it's funny but it's the kind of thing that like it, it's a there's almost a gallows humor to it and you're just like god what are you, what are you doing here like are you yeah. like are you some kind of mad scientist? Like, yeah. what is what is going? I cannot think of a conceivable reason as to why, when my sister's making inroads and I'm making inroads, and now's the time. Yeah, it literally makes no sense when you put it on paper like that. Yeah, and I feel uh, again going back to your very original question, which was, how did you feel when you were asked about doing a testimony? Part of what feeds the no, the automatic no, is is that when I know for a fact that I've gone 10 years kind of coasting on a lot of the same thought processes about who God is and what God can do and relying on Him for, you know, all the churchy things that we always talk about. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I and to come onto a, a podcast and talk at length about that, it's incredibly disingenuous when, you, when you're in... Literally, I'm in, literally. There's that word that everyone keeps saying. Don't use anymore. But I, I, um, I really do feel like that I'm in a moment of serious, three-dimensional, monolithic doubt mm-hmm. about God. 
His and existence or his character? Not just the existence. I mean, I think, I, think I, I have in and out of my faith journey. There's a horrible phrase, but I'll say it. <laughs> my faith journey is intertwined. It's shot through with moments of serious doubt about the existence of God. Mm-hmm. Um, I happen to feel, and I, and I feel uh, a little better about saying this out loud now because of certain uh, sermons by our pastor, Rankin, that to have those feelings of doubt um, are good mm-hmm. as long as you're working through them and coming to some kind of conclusion about it rather than just like flailing about in it. Um, it's a, it's an instrument of powerful recognition yeah. if you're surrounded by people who are helping you in the right way. Um, and I've had those moments. I, I've had those moments of doubt about his existence. I'm not saying that I'm necessarily clearly out of one of those moments now, but no. but it's more like uh, I, 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 I'm realizing again that I, I'm doubting the goodness of God and I'm doubting the 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 purity of his wherewithal when it comes to my life and my my joy which we're told we should we should have we ought to have joy um yeah but i you know i at my age i'm still hanging on to you know to to all of the self incrimination and self doubt and self uh, image issues with regard to like looking like a real man being a real man um, I've been married three and a half years, you know. And wow, has it been that long? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Good for you. Thank you. It's def- does not feel like three and a half years. Um, best move I ever made, though. So, um, I don't know. I feel like I feel like that. There's a a lot of the regret that comes now from thinking about the death of my dad and the nature of it and when it happened. Um my ongoing feelings about it have been feeding into my uh, all but rejection of God mm-hmm. being in my life. But I say that, and it sounds like I've just like been doing my own thing, but I still acknowledge God and His goodness when I got a new car, you know? Not mm-hmm. a new car, but a new used car for me. It was great. <laughs> um, when, you know, I got out of a bad situ- a job situation, I'm like, oh, and I got a better job. That's awesome. When I got a gig that I mentioned in a previous episode writing for a show that I was working on, I was like, this is fantastic. And I, I didn't really do much to do it, so it must have been a gift. Yeah. And I still see it that way. Um, Aubrey biggest gift of my life you know and i wasn't really doing anything to pursue a relationship at that time because i'd kind of in some ways kind of given up um but then there she pops up and she's like awesome in every single way for me um and hopefully me for her yeah as well and so all these things still happen despite the fact that from god's perspective i must be like the lousiest christian ever because i'm i'm spouting love for God to people and I'm spouting he's in my life and I pray which I do and did um, but still harboring this unresolved anger toward him for pulling the rug out of what could have been something really cool you know and so if I can now bring it back since it is getting kind of late in the episode and since we said we would we'll wrap it back around to the initial thing which was one of the worst weeks of my life and that's way an overstatement as a writer I feel like I'm given to those sometimes. Um, it was a bad week in that there were a lot of things that happened on one day, which is Wednesday, that just really beat me up 
one of them was the fact that it was the 10th year anniversary of walking into my dad's room, uh, hospital room, seeing him tied up. This is before we decided mm-hmm. to go that that route and yeah. take all that away from him. But just the vivid memory as provided by my own writing, unfortunately in my notebook, I of course I do this every year and it's like self-torment, but I, I read that stuff every year because I don't know why. I, I just do. And so, but it hit me so hard um, in a different way. And so I went into work on Monday, on Wednesday and that was already on my head. And then I learned something about one of the writers in the show um, that was an old connection to a previous job I had, which told me that she was basically hired out of being an assistant straight to being a staff writer on the show. And I'm like, all this work I've done, all this time I've waited, all the things I've already done, you know, writing for a show, and I'm a script coordinator still, which is a great job to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't knock the job, but I knock having it for as long as I have had it yeah. without getting the opportunity to move ahead. And then I hear this, so it, it's sort of like one of those pull your legs out from under you kind of, yeah. why her, not me kind of moments. It's a yeah. very selfish, solipsistic dirge, like, you know, I'm so sorry for myself. And then, this sounds funny, um, and I'll keep it short, but uh, me and a friend of mine, Josh Rodriguez, you know Josh? Hmm. Um, member of our church. Um, had decided earlier to go see uh, The World's End, which I've been wanting to see for a week and a half, looking forward to it. Yeah. And so we went to see The World's End. One of the trailers before World's End um, was something I'd never heard of. Um, but it was exactly, in, a, in too many ways, like something I've been dilig- diligently working on for quite a while, uh, meaning a script. Ah, and and so I was like in my seat looking forward to the movie and suddenly I'm gut punched by well I don't I guess I can't really work on that anymore because what does it mean to work on something that you know sorry I keep banging my ring on the table apologize um, what does it mean um, you know does it does it mean I give up on that and move on to something else so it's just a, a creative gut punch yeah and then that's the, pretty rough then the end of World's End mirrors. Another project that I've been working on, or at least thinking about very strongly and had it all worked out in my head for a number of months. And I'm like, well, I guess I could still do that. But but that moment, it was like the end. It was the world's end in terms of, in terms of like feeling like anything is going to go right for me at all in my life as I think that I've planned it out. Yeah. Um, this was the same day, Tyler Smith. Okay. And I don't know if you, by the smile, I don't know if you know what's coming. But no, I'm just, there's just more, more stuff. Well, it was, it, this is a good thing, but it didn't feel like a good thing because of the nature of the way the day rolled out. Yeah. But you and a couple of other PCC people, uh, church people, had posted the Jeff Newberg essay from the church website. Yeah. Front of the show, Jeff Newberg. I was going to say that, front of the show, um, Jeff Newberg. And his essay was all about being a creative person in Hollywood and struggling for years and years and years and not getting to where you know you should be based on the talent you feel like you have um, and kind of coming to terms with the possibility that you might not be called to be a successful creative person. You might be called to be a successful in terms of as it's defined by Hollywood or as defined by how you viewed success when you were 10 years younger. All of that. So that was in my head because I read it when a couple of couple people posted around noon, I guess. So I read it. I was like, well, that's kind of me, I guess, now, but not me. I don't want to accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I get to the end of World's End, and I feel like I'm living inside of 
Jeff Newberg's essay on just accepting it. And there's part of me when I read it that was like, well, it's just, it smells like defeat. It smells like settling. It smells like giving up. Um, which means, of course, that I missed his point entirely. <laughs> I know that, and I knew it then, but it still kind of smells that way when you're living that moment, that kind of day. Yes. Um, and so Aubrey and I talked about it, and she had read it as well. I started to forward it to her. Um, listeners should know that she's an artist as well, a, a, a painter. You know, She does all kinds of just wonderful art. And so we both kind of live inside this feeling a lot that we feel like we're not being we're not reaching our our potential Mm -hmm. because of the lack of opportunity that we have for certain things coming along um so 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 wednesday was just one of the worst days and the the rug that pulled the whole room together was (laughs) the 10-year anniversary of the death of my dad which which as i realized over the course of the day and talking to aubrey was actually pointing me toward a, a new, deeper realization of just how far removed I've become from God, or how I've come from God, and how lousy my definition of who God is to me is. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to do your podcast. Mm. I didn't want to come to the show. I didn't want to, from the moment Wednesday started, um, almost, to driving up in, in front of your complex, to some of the moments before when we were just talking and kind of hanging out and talking. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want to do this. And I didn't tell you why, because it, you know, it would have been this conversation except before recorders it. Um, but I didn't, I didn't want to do it because it's like, who, who am I to give my testimony when I'm in such a state of sort of an abject loss of love for a lot of it. Yeah. And the realization that what might be required to become healthy in that string of perspectives, um, attitude toward marriage, attitude toward job, and quote-unquote success, attitude toward God, um, church, everything from attendance to helping, you know, actually being a a full member of the church by doing things that help other people. All of those attitudes are currently um, smothered by a lot of what's going on that I've sort of let get out of hand. And that's where I am. That's my testimony, is that all the great, awesome, wonderful things that have happened despite coming from such a lousy sort of childhood um, to right now culminates in me at this exact moment of this recording wondering how the hell to move. Do you find yourself able to have like really any hope at all? Is it a situation oh, yeah. where... Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think that my default is to be is to be cynically optimistic <laughs> if that's if that's it you has, might need to try to you might need to define that a little bit because uh, well i i feel extremely comfortable I'll, I'll define it but i feel extremely comfortable saying that because i believe that that i have a, a, a too too close an understanding of how people can be um who are in positions of power 
um, to to be completely optimistic yeah. that I will ever find creative satisfaction in a paying position. Yeah. That's just one thing. Um, other aspects you know, we could go into, but um, but optimistic because I think that my my basic, and this might be healthy sometimes and unhealthy other times. My my stance toward the world is is sort of objective, meaning I feel like that I can place how I've lived uh, or the kind of story that my story is. Um, in in the context of the broader world story, not to get too grandiose again, mm-hmm. but I know that basically it's a Charlie Brown concept, or it's the Woody Allen concept, okay. which is um, I, I I'm always aware of the the person who is has it worse than me, okay. and that's good because it keeps keeps my self pity in check. Yeah, it's bad. Because it disallows me from fully enjoying certain moments, yeah. or or finding joy in really what are very simple good things to enjoy. It's the classic Charlie Brown uh, peanuts strip, which is after decades of the strip, you know, um, Charlie Brown finally wins a, a ball game, mm-hmm. and the rest of the team surrounds him and is like throwing him up in the air and saying, you know. We finally won a game. We finally won a game. Charlie Brown, you pitched him out. You know, this is great. And cut to him later. He's still standing on the mound. Everyone's gone away. And he says, wow, that other team must feel really horrible. <laughs> you know, and it's that. And it, Woody Allen is the same way. It's why yeah. I know it's why I gravitate toward Woody Allen's perspective on life and why I've seen every one of his movies. It's why I gravitated toward Peanuts when I was a kid before I ever even knew words to put on how I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. It's because I, I, I always default to other people who can't enjoy what I'm enjoying now. And and so that's cynical, isn't it? But it's also optimistic because I know that I have that I enjoy writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I enjoy getting feedback that's positive and negative, mostly negative actually because that feels more honest. Hmm. Um um I I have great friends and a beautiful family. And um that can't do anything but feed optimism. It's like, you know, yeah. there are great people in the world. Yeah. Um, and so I, I feel very comfortable saying I'm cynically optimistic <laughs> um, about the future. And I know that um, I have a wonderful wife who loves me dearly. And she's heard aspects of this in the past. She's never heard all of this put together. If she listens to this, if she gets to the two-hour mark or whatever it is, we're not um, there yet. she'll know because... Um, and she'll she'll come to me. She'll move toward me, as she likes to say. Yeah. She'll move toward me, and we'll find a way to work through all this. And and yeah, so I, I feel good about it. But is it subjectively or objectively? I don't know. But I feel just because of the kind of week I've had, especially Wednesday and Friday's coming. Friday is the the actual anniversary of my yeah. dad dying, and so it's just this protracted kind of half self-pity half realization of where I could be kind of thing constantly happening for over a week um, that it's only going to get worse (laughs) um, as next week rolls along so there I go I I don't know what else to say beyond where I am right now well and I and I know that we do need to uh, to wrap up and and what I will say is that uh, you know listeners might recall my testimony and I certainly 
I don't know why I felt the need to give it at that moment. Uh, I was in the throes of clinical depression the first time in my life. I remember him. And it was rough. I was crying all the time. I was punching myself in the face. Hmm. Um, and, And I was just, I was hopeless. And yes, I still believed in God. I, it didn't necessarily translate to doubt. Um, I doubt other times, but in that moment, oddly enough, I I still believed in God, and I still believed that he loved me, but it didn't do anything for me at the time. Like so, yeah. Such is the nature of depression, as it tends to numb you to things good and bad. And at the time that I recorded the testimony, I mean, if you listen to it, at the end, I mean, it sounds... I'm saying things that I know to be true. Mm. But I, you, you listen to that and you're like, he sure isn't saying this with conviction. Right. He's not convincing me <laughs> yeah. that this is true. Um, but I did. But I still believed it. And you know, part of me. And, and so in the moment, like I mean, I I recorded my testimony and held it for two weeks. I didn't. Oh, uh, well, I didn't, didn't put it up because I was just like, I don't know, man. Like this is. I also was. By the way, I was also deep in the throes of paranoia at the time, which I always kind of am, but very much so at the time. And I thought that with my testimony, I had given, (laughs) I would be, I would, I would be giving a weapon to the people online that are hostile towards me. And there are people like that. And so when I say like, oh, hey, I, you know, I struggled with porn and stuff like that, and, um. I just thought that like that would be something, and the, and even admitting that I'm that I was like depressed and stuff like that, the people would be like, "Oh, I'm a, you know, I thought right. God was supposed to, you know, everlasting joy down in your heart and all that kind of thing." <laughs> um, and so I just so I held it for a long time for a number of reasons. One of them is like this is not. I can't imagine anybody looking at this version of Christianity and saying, "Sign me up!" Right. And you know, even now there's. There's part of me that wants to like ask a leading question to get you to a point where you say something that's really optimistic, but like really God positive. But if at the moment you're not feeling that, then I don't want to force it. And what I will say is like, you read through the Bible, you read, well, Jeremiah and Jonah and Job and a good portion of Psalms. And just like, there are people that follow God and that has not made their physical life much better. In fact, in some cases, Paul, it makes it much worse sure. physically. Yeah. Um, and and they acknowledge that. And they, you know, they wish they'd never been born in some cases. And, and God at times rebukes that attitude, but he never rejects them. Like, I know it's a very, you, you've been mentioning like, you know, Christian idioms. And one of the things that, that people say a lot, they say like, you know, God can handle it if we're angry at him. Right. Um, and that's true. He actually can. Like all the stuff that you and I were talking about of like, oh, well, if the, like for me, like the idea of somebody not liking me is just, you know, I crumble. And I think, I think at times I put that on God and I feel like, oh, I shouldn't. I shouldn't be mad at God sometimes because he won't like it. It's like, no, he's God. He can, he'll be fine. He doesn't, it's not, he's not nearly as insecure as you are. Right. You're going to be fine. Uh, And he's going to be fine. And so, you know, and there was this other quote on Facebook that I saw recently. I did not post it. I commented on it um, in which uh, another friend of the show, whose name I won't say, 
posted a quote from someone else talking about how, you know, Christians should not be gloomy. Now, here's the thing. When you read the rest of the quote, you realize, okay, he's gloomy is not the word he's looking for there. Um, but anyway, but he goes on to say, like, you know, that the joy of Christ should, like, permeate our being and, and people should be able to see that joy. Hmm. And I agree with him to a certain extent, but the thing that got me is, like, there are times when the only thing that gets me out of bed, the only thing that keeps me, if you'll pardon me, if we're getting real, uh, like the only thing that keeps me from killing myself, not that I feel like it very much anymore, but there was a time when very much I, I thought about it every day, mm-hmm. is that I, that I am loved. I didn't feel it. It didn't stir anything in me. It was just the knowledge that I was loved. And that was enough. And it seemed like barely enough. But it was enough. And so, like, I look at that as opposed to, like, oh, Christians shouldn't be gloomy. It's like, how about this? How about God's love is keeping me from killing myself? <laughs> wow. Can't, th- can't yeah. that be enough at the, for the yeah. time being? Yeah. And just, and so, you know, all that is to say, you know, your, your concern of, like, oh, I don't, you know, worrying that you would maybe put like a bad face on Christianity or feel like you didn't deserve to say the things that you're saying here because of the things you're dealing with. To me, like not merely my own experience, but also what listeners have said is just like, this is what life is. And I think Christians too often say they downplay life and the, in some cases, awful, horrendous, complicated, frustrating aspects of life because they, they're they get in selling mode and they want to play up. Mm-hmm. They want to play up the positives of a product while playing down the negatives. And, and that's the thing. To Christianity itself, there's no real negative. But, what ha- but we turn certain things into a negative. What we turn into is the idea that it doesn't make everything positive. And we act as though it should be, it's like, well, it's transformative, so it should transform everything, and I should never have any trouble, and I should listen to what Joel Osteen says, and I should just, uh, and I should, I can have my best life now, and everything's fine. And then the fact that Christianity, and that God doesn't do that, doesn't give us every single thing we want all the time forever, that becomes somehow a negative within Christianity. Right. And so I've, I've been going too long, but I just want to say, like, your story, while the specifics are yours, at some point I feel like probably everybody has felt the things that you're feeling. And it's, you know, it doesn't have to, you know, I, I know you well enough to know that as bad as it's going to get, that you'll get, that you'll get out of it because you have a firm foundation to stand on. Like, cause that's the other thing is I know it sounds weird, but I was talking with a friend about this last night, just like, but it is one of those things like your dad, he might've done those things anyway. He might, uh, he probably would have done those things anyway. And now imagine you dealing with all of this without forgiveness being a virtue, Hmm. being something that we are supposed to do because we were forgiven ourselves. Like, you know, and I'm sure that the, the, the humility that come and the, and the emphasis on all of us being fallen that comes with, our faith. I'm sure that there are times, like I just in hearing you talk about Vietnam, like your dad in Vietnam, obviously that doesn't excuse it, but there are plenty of people that will look at what he did and condemn his actions, which we should to such a degree that they, they don't care why they don't care what could be going on in that man's head. 
they only care that he did this terrible thing and that's the end of it. Yeah. And because God cared about us to the, you know, he saved Ted Bundy, you know, <laughs> like, and, and the fact that like God cares about all of us and, and gives us this, gives us all the same opportunities. Yeah. That creates in us a desire, hopefully, to do the to go against our instinct, and certainly condemn a person's action, and maybe even be emotionally cautious around them. But to recognize, in the end, we are all insanely broken people. Yeah. Some of us might deal with it a different way and in a way that hurts others, and that's awful. And should be, and those people should be protected as much as possible. But like, if you didn't have this basis of faith. You might have killed your dad. I don't think so, obviously. But that's the thing is like, what's I'm not to, the killing what, type? You're not the killing type. But that, but the when in the end, like, what's to stop you? Who would ever say that was wrong? I would have written a scathing satire against him. Well, that I and maybe he would have seen it. I don't know if he's a Woody Allen, if he was a Woody Allen fan. But you know, he would and not have watched it. What was that? He would not have watched it. Fair enough. Um, and that's the thing is just, and I'm I'm being maybe hyperbolic, but just. No, can I say um, what that makes me think of is um, is this constant, you know, it's a struggle that we have as Christians to uh, explain horror, you know, explain oh, yeah. tragedy, why do bad things happen to good people, all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> we don't excuse it or explain it, but we do say and we do embrace often um, once time has gone by uh, – the the good that comes out of those things mm-hmm. and i mean i'm old enough and i've been thinking about this long enough that i do know despite all the doom and gloom that i that i mentioned about kind of where i am this week um i i i, I look back at my life and i i think my dad was a horrible dad in <laughs> almost every kind of way that you can think yeah. of um but and my brother being the way he is um, and other things that happened or the way people were in my family, all those things feed into, not that I'm the end-all, be-all of the world, like all of, all of history Has culminates been. in me. You know, it's <laughs> like, it's not I'm, not, I'm not saying that I'm thinking that way, but I am saying that in my world, in my head, um, all I can do is, is salvage a little bit of good Mm-hmm. from underneath the wreckage and the good is that i feel like that i'm because of my brother especially i'm I'm a much more compassionate person yeah. to people who have disabilities of any kind um because of my dad you, you kind of touched on this a minute ago but because of my dad i think that i, I don't understand him yeah. you know but I, but i i do reserve a space in my imagination it almost has to be my imagination that that the guy I just saw his mug photo mug shot flashed on the news screen that he just killed like four people with a shotgun in the park. Hmm. You know, maybe maybe there's something there is good in him. <laughs> you know that that ridiculous <laughs> Return of the Jedi. Um, you know that, but that yeah, exactly Return of the Jedi. There is good in Darth Vader. Yeah. The oppressor of the galaxy, the guy who's killed who knows how many in order to maintain his power. Yeah. Pull the mask off, it's just another guy. Yeah. Another broken guy. 
And it doesn't excuse anything he's done. It doesn't excuse slopping off Luke's hand in the in the end of the second movie. But he's still just a guy underneath the mask. And boy, I, I didn't mention this earlier when I was talking about Hamlet, but Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi are such pivotal movies for me. And I don't yeah. even talk about it to anybody. It's just like... Thinking of my dad and thinking of the darkness in his heart, in his brain, yeah. in his own past that turned into the things he did to my immediate family. Yeah. And if I could just have the chance, oh my goodness, if I could just have the chance to unscrew his mask and take it off and look at him. Unfortunately for me, the the movie ended somewhere around an hour in. Um, Not to be too glib, but... But yeah, so I mean, I, I think that that's I think that's what um, people who aren't believers don't understand, and it's what believers barely understand is that things are going to be crappy for you even after you admit to loving him and accepting him in helping to guide your life or in guiding your life. Um, terrible things are going to happen. Yeah, but you're going to learn from them. You're gonna. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, and that's the thing is we do we do have to press on. I mean, and that's to me one of the and we'll 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 end on this. Um, one of the most fascinating. It's, I'm totally self conscious now that you mentioned Sorry. that I use that word all the time. Um, one of the most fascinating things to me about Christianity is how there are things in it that people would say are not necessarily contradictory, but like. Jesus asking for the cup to pass from him. Are you kidding me? Like, that is so human. And, by the way, we're talking about Jesus, you know, human and, you know, man and God, God's son who knows what he's supposed to do, incidentally, and still in that moment doesn't want it. Doesn't, uh, you know, it says like, if there's any other way, this would be really great. Because I don't like, Jesus didn't like pain. You know, he cried when Lazarus died. He didn't want to be physically destroyed, yeah. you know? And just like, it, it is, as I've said, as I said, I believe in my testimony like Christianity and God and Jesus and whoever you want to talk about like it's something that he's somebody that understands us and that's the thing that I always have a hard time with is just feeling like God is so above us that he's just vaguely interested at best but he understands us he understands the human condition and so like you know, moments of doubt, moments of anger, and and just and a, a, a deep regret over the pain that we've had to endure. Like he knows, he knows all of that, and that can hopefully provide us with. It sounds strange, but like I'll say, misery loves company. But like <laughs> it's one of those things. After my dad passed away. I felt so, so alone amongst my friends because I was the only one I knew that had lost any, any close relative. 
And then a year and a half later, David, my Battleship Pretension co-host and my roommate at the time, his dad then died quite suddenly. And it brought us closer together and just like, I I certainly wasn't rejoicing over his father dying, but it's this thing, it's just like, oh, you've been through it too. I don't feel so alone. And, so, and it provides a, a shocking amount of comfort. And the fact that God has felt the things, you know, that, that Christ has felt the things that we feel and remained Christ is to me very comforting. It is not, he's not far away. He's not data from Star Trek or some, or some or Spock in the old Star Trek, you know, just emotionless and confused by why we might think things or feel things. Um, and that is to me a tremendous comfort. And sometimes that's the only thing I, that's the only thing I've got is that level of comfort. All right. We're going to wrap up. We're over two hours now. Um, I will say, uh, Robert, thank you so much for being on and thank you for being as honest and open and vulnerable as you have been. Um, listeners, I have uh, permission from Robert to give his email address. If you feel the need to email him about one thing or another, um, so yes, so his email is ridiculous. Here's what it is. <laughs> it is. It's blurm. How do you spell that? Well, no one knows because it's not a real word. It's B-L-I-R-M at yahoo.com. So you can email Robert blurm at yahoo.com. Blurm, of course, being Robert's middle name. What? So, um. Not true. What's your middle name? Alan. Which? Alan. It's my dad's name. That is your dad's name. Yep. It's always there with you. Always. Every time you see your name in a legal document. Pretty much. Yeah. Um, but, uh, all right. Well, thank you once again, Robert, for being here and uh, everything that you said. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, so next week, officially, we're supposed to do another uh, mini-sode in which we talk about Josh's, I believe, fourth favorite movie of all time. Uh, but he's not here, and so I'm not quite sure what I'll do. Um, Maybe I'll so. come on and just do all ten of mine. Do you have a top ten? I could make one. Sure, please do. I've be- I meant to. E- I emailed some of my writers uh, that request, but I, I, this is off air discussion. Sorry. I, I really enjoyed the Annie Hall. Well, of course you did. No, but not not just because I love that movie so much, but you guys talked about it in a way that I enjoyed listening to. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, well, there's the immediacy because we were expecting a pizza. Good. But. Um, but yeah, so uh, thank you everybody for listening. You can go to morethanonelesson.com for uh, other episodes and uh, various uh, blogs by our, our writers. Um, please, please read those. Um, I think they. I think my writers do very do a very good job, and I like people. Great, I really. like people to read them. Um, you can email me Tyler at morethanonelesson.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at morelessons. And you can join the Facebook group uh, as well. I do not know exactly what the URL for that is, but you can go to morethanonelesson.com. And on the side, on the chalkboard on the side, there will be a thing that says Facebook. Click that, and that will take you to the group, and you can join it there. So, okay. Uh, Thank you, everybody, so much for listening, and I'll get you next time. Bye. Bye.